this, the scriptures from Deuteronomy. And it's the first chapter of Deuteronomy. Moses, on this side of the promised land, they haven't gone over yet, is recounting the things that have happened the past 40 years. And today he tells the story of what happened when they first escaped from Egypt, got to the edge of the promised land. God ordered them in, but they refused to go. And this is Moses' account beginning in verse 22. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men to spy out uh, the route that we shall go and bring back news of the towns that we will see along the way. It seemed like a good idea to me. So I appointed 12 men, one from every tribe. They went up to the land to explore it. They came to the valley of Eshkol and they brought down to us some of the good fruit of the land. And we to show us that indeed it was a good land that the Lord our God was giving us. But you rebelled against the Lord's command and would not go up. You said in your tents, the Lord hates us. The Lord has brought us out of Egypt to deliver us to the Amorites. And you would not go into the land the Lord your God had for you. And so... I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid. For the Lord your God who goes before you will fight for you just as he did before your very eyes, both in Egypt and in the wilderness. The Lord will carry you as a father carries his son all the way to the place where you have come to this day. But you did not trust. The Lord your God, who led you to the places where you should go by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day to show you where you should camp. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I want to introduce you for the next few months to the Jesus book. Now, the Jesus book is not some newly discovered book that you can find out about on the History Channel or National Geographic, some book that was left out of the Bible but ought to be in there according to scholars. The Jesus book is simply this. It is the book of Deuteronomy. And I call it the Jesus book because if you examine the Gospels carefully or as you listen to them in our 40 days of listening to the New Testament, you will find that Jesus quotes more from the book of Deuteronomy and makes more allusions to the book of Deuteronomy than he does any other book in his Bible, what we call the Old Testament. It is clear to most scholars that Deuteronomy is the central text for Judaism, uh, both for Jesus' day and for today. The interesting thing about Deuteronomy is this. The book of Numbers takes 26 chapters to, um, to cover almost 40 years in the life of Israel from the time they escaped Egypt until they finally got into the promised land. But the book of Deuteronomy takes 34 chapters to cover what scholars believe is about 11 to 14 days. As, and it is a series of speeches that Moses made to the people. Sort of a valedictory address, valedictory address, we might say. He is summing up the lessons that have been learned over the past 40 years. And so when we come to today's lesson, uh, what Moses is talking about is about the time that they, they escaped Egypt, they got to the verge of the promised land, God said, go in there, and they refused to go. 
And the issue before us is, why did they refuse to go in? They had lots of evidence that they should go in. Among the evidence they had that Moses pointed out is they had seen what God had done to the Egyptians in the Exodus. How the mightiest empire in the world had been brought to its knees through a series of ten plagues. And then finally through the parting of the Red Sea and the drowning of some of Pharaoh's elite forces in the Red Sea. They had the evidence of what God had done taking them in the wilderness to bring them to the brink of the promised land. How God had fed them. How God had watered them. How God had cared for them all along the way. And then they could look outside their tents and see the evidence of God being present with them right now. At night, they could look out and see a pillar of fire indicating God's presence. In the daytime, they could look out and see a cloud. But in spite of all this evidence to go forward, they refused. Because you see, there was some other evidence that seemed to overweigh it in their mind. And I didn't quote to you the scripture of the other evidence, but it is this. They said to Moses, What are we to do? Our brothers made our hearts melt with fear. They said that the people there are stronger and taller than we are. They live in large cities with walls up to the sky. The evidence against God and God's command for them is the fact that the people where they're going are tall. And they're strong. And historically, this seems to be the case. The Egyptians actually write about some tall people who live in what we now call um, the Holy Land or Israel today, uh, much taller than the Egyptians. And it's noted. Josephus says in writing about the Jews that in the, in the first century when he's writing, the bones of some of these people who lived almost 1,500 years earlier have been preserved, their skeletons, just to show people how tall and how large these people were. So historically, it seems the people were telling the truth. But here's my question for you. Were these people taller than God? Were they bigger than God? Why does the evidence of tall people overweigh all that God has done for them in getting them out of Egypt and getting them to the verge of the promised land? The answer, it seems to me, is found in Moses' speech when he says that what you said to me is... That God hates us. God brought us out of Egypt just to deliver us to the Amorites and have them destroy us. In other words, the reason the evidence works against God is in their mind they have a picture of a God who hates them. Of a God who's not for them. Of a God who really doesn't love them. And I wonder how in the world do you get a picture like that? God has brought them out of slavery. My son brought back from his trip to uh, Israel this summer a piece of slag from an old um, uh, a mining operation, our smelting operation, smelting copper that the Egyptians had during the days of Israel's slavery. And they used a number of slaves, the pre-Semitic slaves and also Israelite slaves later on. And they would work in a desert area, these slaves, and it would be 100 to 120 degrees all the time. And then you're smelting this uh, copper, and it's three to 4,000 degrees in order to smelt copper. It's a terrible existence, and God had freed them from that. And yet now God is said to hate them. How do you get a picture like that? Well, I think the answer, the answer is again in Moses' speech. And by the way, we all know people who have this sort of picture of God. 
that when something happens in their life that doesn't go the way they had hoped or planned or even disaster, and bad things do happen to good people, a disaster sets in, their immediate response is God doesn't love us or God hates us or there's not really a God. And that's what these Israelites did. Well, how did they get to that point? seems like Moses gives a few clues in his speech. The first one is this. He says that the people sat in their tents and grumbled. In other words, when they had concerns, they didn't take them to the leaders that God had appointed. They didn't take them to Moses. They didn't take them to other people. They sat in their tents and whispered and just grumbled each other in private about the bad things. They never took their concerns and aired them out in the light of community. They never took their concerns and put them out to a larger group of people who might have a larger vision of God. They just took counsel from their own warped opinion. Scripture is, teaches all the way from Genesis to Revelation that about the worst thing you can do in life is break off from the community and go your own way. First of all, you break off, you could be in physical harm. The enemies could come and get you if you are not banded together with other of God's people. And then you can come to spiritual and emotional harm and you can draw obviously wrong conclusions, but they're not obvious to you because you're just in your tent with yourself. And so the first thing that we learned is they made this awesome and terrible mistake because they didn't talk to other people. They just whispered and grumbled among themselves in their tent. And then the second thing that Moses tells us in the speech is Moses said, I had to say to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. They drew these misperceptions of God out of their fear. I don't know if you've ever realized that when you are afraid, you don't really think that clearly. Uh, your, some of your physical senses might be heightened, like a flight or fight response. But you don't always see things as they really are. And in their fear... They saw a God that was for them, and they turned God into a God who was against them. Uh, somebody taught me years ago the acronym for fear. You're probably aware of it. F-E-A-R is false evidence appearing real. And that's what they did. They looked at, at this evidence of these tall people and decided it outweighed all that God had done for them. And the very fact that God was sitting outside the tent in the form of a pillar or a cloud. In fear, we're never our best selves. We don't judge things as they really are. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing to his mother when he was in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, about to be executed uh, soon, said this. He said to his mother, of course, there are times when we are afraid, but then we think of more important things. There's something that serves as an antidote to fear, and it is in our mind. It's the ability to think of things as they really are and to think of God as God really is. When Bonhoeffer uh, knew the Nazis had him, knew that his days in the prison cell were probably numbered, he turned his attention from them to the God of the universe, and it enabled him to go on. I think what really happens here is not only that these people get out of community and they just privately grumble, that they're afraid and so they draw wrong conclusions, but the other thing that happens here is this. They don't think the thoughts about God. It, when you look at their description of God, they're really describing an Egyptian God. The Egyptian gods were capricious. The Egyptian gods had to be appeased. The Egyptian gods would strike you down if you didn't do what they said. And even if you did do what they said, it was a roll of the dice. They might get you anyway. 
That was the God of Egypt. That was not the God of Israel. In their fear, they thought about the wrong God. They thought about the God they had left, not the God who had taken them out of Egypt. Years ago, there was a man uh, who was a famous biblical scholar, and he was known not only in the Christian community, but he was also known among people who weren't Christians. So he would go to cocktail parties, and he said it would almost happen invariably. Somebody would say to him, well, you know, Professor, I don't really believe in God. And his response to them would be something like this. Well, tell me about that God you don't believe in. And they would describe, of course, a capricious God or a God who didn't care or a God uh, uh, who didn't do things right. And he would listen and then he would say to them, you know, I don't believe in that God either. Usually when people don't believe in God, they're, it's a, an Egyptian God they don't believe in. They don't know what the God of the universe is really like. What is the God of the universe really like? He is like a father with a son or a daughter. All the way, Moses said, he carried you like a father carries a son. Now, I've got three sons. And I remember years ago, my wife thought it would be a really good idea when one of my sons uh, was a toddler, uh, but still weighed about 30 pounds, that it would be a really good idea if we all climbed Enchanted Rock. Well, he couldn't climb. So he got there by me carrying him all the way up. Now, there were a lot of other children there, but I didn't bother to carry everybody else's children. I carried my own. And then I thought about how through the years my wife and I have carried that child in different ways. To try to clothe him, to try to teach him right from wrong, to try to make sure that he did his schoolwork, to try to make sure that, that he began to learn God's Word. And, and now he's a senior and we're trying to help him with the college process. Now, someday we may do something, and it may even be tomorrow, and he may say to us, you don't really love me. But, of course, any rational person will know that's not true. Any rational person would be able to see that we have carried him all that way, and just because in one moment he might be disappointed, that wouldn't make us parents who didn't love. This is the picture of God. God has carried us all the way to this point, and the point may not be where you'd like to be at this moment, or maybe you feel like you've taken two steps backward, but to say that God hates you is to talk about a different God and not this God. This is a God who has carried you. This is a God who carried Israel. This is a God who loves you. A friend of mine years ago was watching one of those old movie channels with her daughter, and late at night, and an Abbott and Costello movie came on, and Abbott and Costello end up, uh, uh, if you remember the old comedians, they, they, they end up in a haunted house. And in the haunted house, the first thing that happens is they get separated from each other. They're on their own apart from community. Second thing that happens is they get very afraid. And the third thing that happens is they try to find each other. And as one starts to go after the other one, he runs into a sheet on a line. And all of a sudden he's covered with a white sheet. And his friend looks back at him and thinks it's a ghost. And he runs from the very person who wants to help him. And my friend Karen talked about this movie. And then she looked at us who were sitting around the table and she said, I want you to tell me who put the sheet on God. Who turned God from someone that we should run to into someone that we should run from? If you have a God that you cannot run to, you don't have 
God. You have some Egyptian God. 